Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here, and just grateful to be together here this morning. If you're joining us online, I'm thankful that you're joining us as well. Well, this morning, we are here to remember the life of Independent Dave, or as some of you have referred to him as, Young Dave. So handsome. Independent Dave, he was outgoing and full of energy, always ready for an adventure with friends every night of the week, unlike me who likes to be in bed by at least 10 o'clock. Independent Dave, he was involved in sports and work and ministry and school, leading him to believe that life couldn't get any busier. <laughs> How cute. In some ways, Independent Dave was naive, but he was loved regardless. It was in January of 2003 that Independent Dave began to leave us. Few said it was too soon particularly Independent Dave's parents, who could be overheard making plans with what to do with his vacated bedroom. Most people's sympathies, however, were with Independent Dave's new bride, expressing that their thoughts and prayers would be with her. It was in the summer of 2008 and the spring of 2011 that were the final nails in the coffin for Independent Dave, so to speak. Oh, perhaps uh, that's kind of inappropriate for an occasion such as this. But few knew Independent Dave as well as I did. You know, I have a lot of fond memories of the life that he lived, a lot of good times. And though he and I share a lot of similarities and still do, my life is completely different from Independent Dave's. And to be honest, I don't miss him. Today I can say without hesitation, Independent Dave, I wouldn't want to be you. But let's take a moment and remember Independent Dave. Silence, come on. Well, in case you haven't caught on, I am Dave, and this little memorial was about my life before marriage and children. But let me be clear that uh, I'm not saying that having kids or being married is a bummer, nor am I saying that it is superior to being single and not having kids. It is neither of those things. You can take the picture down now. I don't want to distract anyone for too long. What I hope to illustrate with this little tribute here is that there are things that happen in our lives, things like marriage or children, that are so monumental, so life-changing, that it's like the old life is gone and nothing will ever be the same again. Things that cause such changes in our lives can be good or bad. Maybe you've experienced this kind of life-altering event in a move to another city, or perhaps by taking on a new career, or maybe retiring from one. This kind of impact can be made when uh, someone new comes into your life or when we lose someone out of them. Perhaps your life has been changed forever by a choice you have made or maybe it's been the collateral damage of a decision made by someone else. But regardless, some things have such a huge impact on us Though we may look like the same person from the outside, our lives have been radically altered. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul describes how the good news of God's grace has such an impact. It's not the kind of event that makes just a few minor alterations in our lives. 
This good news means that nothing will ever be the same again, that the gospel will shake up your world. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in them to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus." I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him or, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, Paul starts out this passage this morning saying, for this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. Now we might wonder, what is the reason Paul is referring to here that made him a prisoner? And this is one of those times in our Bible where those large chapter markers that we have are unhelpful. They weren't there in the original letter. They were added later to help make navigating our Bibles a lot easier. But if we were to disregard that chapter marker here, then we would instinctively understand that Paul is referring to what he has just previously written before this sentence. In chapter 2, Paul wrote about how Christ had reconciled both Jew and Gentile, Israelites and non-Israelites to God. In the past... God had revealed himself to a select people who eventually became the nation of Israel. They had this special relationship with God, which they were not to keep to themselves, but they were to model this relationship and share it with all of the other nations, all the Gentiles. But Israel did a pretty poor job of this, mainly keeping it to themselves. But in Ephesians 2, which Sarah preached on last week, Paul writes about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection changed everything. There are no more walls. Now, through faith in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled to God, and in the process, they are no longer two separate groups differentiated by their different or distinct cultures and ethnicities, but now they are one new group. Not just mingled together, but transformed by their faith in Christ into one new humanity. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is what Paul keeps referring to in our passage this morning as the mystery of Christ. The word mystery in the Bible, it's used differently. It's understood differently than the way that we would use the word mystery today. We might use the word mystery like referring to a detective novel where we didn't know who did the crime, or mystery like something difficult or impossible for us to understand. But mystery in the Bible refers to something of God that wasn't known before, but that has now been revealed. And Paul states what this very mystery is in verse 6. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The thing that wasn't known before but is now revealed is that through Jesus, God has completed what he has always intended to do, to bring the non-Jewish people of the world, the Gentiles, into a relationship with him on equal terms with Israel, full-fledged children, just like the Jews, all sharing equally in the benefits and privileges of being in God's family. So there are no second-class citizens, no favorites. Every believer inherits God's grace, forgiveness, and eternal life through Christ. The mystery of the gospel that these two formerly hostile groups that are now one family in God, this not only shook up the world of Gentile Christians like the Ephesians here who couldn't believe their good fortune, but it completely disrupted the world of Jewish believers who were probably unsure of what this meant for them. What did this mean for their traditions, for the things that they held dear, the things that made them different or distinct from everybody else? What did this mean for things like circumcision or the Sabbath or food laws? For many Israelites, this gospel mystery didn't appear to be good news, but rather came as something that threatened to unravel their way of life as they knew it. The gospel, it was shaking up their world. And this brings us back to the reason that Paul says that he is in prison. For those of you who aren't familiar with Paul, it's essential that we know his backstory. We're introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7, where he was going by the name Saul at that time, and he wasn't a Christian. He was a passionate Jewish leader opposed to the way of Jesus. And faithful Jews, especially leaders like Paul, they never would have consorted with Gentiles. They looked down upon them. They despised them. On top of this, Paul, who is zealous for his Jewish faith, he went from town to town, rounding up these Christians to imprison them. And he even oversaw and, and approved of at least one Christian being put to death, all because he felt that these Christians and their message posed a threat to Judaism and his way of life. However, on one of his expeditions to hunt down and arrest followers of Jesus, Paul had an incredible encounter with the risen Christ, 
who appeared to him in a blinding light. And from this encounter, Paul became a Christian. And then Christ assigned him the ministry of sharing the gospel, the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world with the Gentiles. The most unlikely candidate for the job gets recruited by Jesus. How crazy is that? This is the revelation Paul refers to in Ephesians 3.3. And then by the power of the Spirit, Paul does a phenomenal job of it, traveling throughout the Roman world, proclaiming Jesus is Savior and Lord to both Jews and Gentiles, but it is mainly the Gentiles who respond to Paul's message and become Christ's followers. But Paul loves his Jewish people, and Acts tells us that on his journey, he collected money from Gentile Christians to support the church in Jerusalem who was suffering at this time. And he returned back to Jerusalem in order to drop off this gift, bringing some of his new Gentile Christian friends along with him. And this is where Paul runs into trouble. Acts 21. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city in Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. This is how Paul ended up in prison. But why does Paul believe that he's there? Is it because he thinks the Jews were jealous of him? Or that the Romans were using him as a scapegoat for the riot? No. Look at what he says in verse 1. He tells us that he believes he is in prison for the sake of the Gentiles and by the sovereignty of God. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not a prisoner of Rome. Paul trusts that the that God is still in control despite his difficult circumstances and that God will use it for good. How can he think this? Well, he's a follower of Jesus. And why did Jesus die? Was it because the Jews were jealous or that the Romans were using him as a scapegoat for some political unrest? Certainly they were involved, but ultimately it was God who planned this, that Jesus would die for the sins of the world so that we might be forgiven and reconciled with God and with one another. Romans 3 says, There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. Do you see how the gospel shakes up our worlds? 
Paul didn't believe that his life was ruled by his imprisonment or by his Roman guards. His alternate view of reality, which is shaped by the gospel, told him that Christ was ruling over everything, including his incarceration. This means, though, that we are not ruled by our circumstances, whether good or bad, either, if we are in Christ. We can trust that God is in control. We can trust that he is using everything, including the difficult things that we're going through, perhaps especially the difficulties we're going through, for his good purposes and for our sake, even if we don't understand how or why. You know, my wife and I have had our fair share of pretty significant health issues during our married lives. And it's been hard and confusing and sometimes downright depressing. But Andrea made this chalkboard that's hung up on, our, on the wall beside our kitchen table. And she wrote this verse from Romans uh, 5 on there, which says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And for me, when I look up at this chalkboard at each meal time, it's a helpful reminder to me that God is good and he is at work even through our trials even in our struggles, and he's doing it for our sake. It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't make it less hard, but it does make a world of difference. And if you're tempted to get down on God because of your difficult circumstances, let me urge you, do not use your present circumstances as the indicator of how God feels about you. Look to Jesus to measure how much God loves you. Don't look at your present circumstances. Rather, look to Jesus to see how much God loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He wants you to follow him, and he's got good plans for your life. But if you do choose to follow him, your life will never be the same again. Just like it did for Paul, following Jesus, it will shake up your world. And Jesus says, it's like taking up your own cross. He never promises that it will be easy. And for many people, like for many of those Israelites, the gospel doesn't seem like good news because it threatens to unravel our way of life, the life that we're comfortable with. It threatens our ideas of the good life and what we're pursuing. But we need to remember how earlier, like I said goodbye to independent Dave and how some things that happen to us in our lives. They're so monumental that it's like the old life is gone and nothing will ever be the same again. And following Jesus is just like that. It so profoundly shakes up our worlds. It's like saying farewell to that former life. It means putting to death our ideas of what will make a good life in exchange for God's plans for us. Again, Paul writes in Romans 6, don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is why the gospel shakes up our world so much if we come to faith in Christ. It means saying goodbye to that former way of life, but not just goodbye. It also means welcoming a new life. One that is free. One that will never die. In Ephesians 3.12, Paul says that this new life through faith in Christ, it allows us to approach God with freedom and confidence. This is what is offered to all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, man or woman. God does not discriminate. God welcomes every one of us to restore our broken relationship with him through faith in Jesus. And he welcomes you no matter what you've done or where you've been or who you are. But coming to him, it will shake up your world. But I urge you to come. But what does this new shaken up by the gospel life look like? First of all, we see that there are no divisions based on ethnicity or culture. There's no division based on ethnicity or culture. And so as followers of Christ, it means that there is no room for discrimination or prejudice. Jesus is in the business of tearing down walls and not building them up. So are his followers. Second, we saw how radically Paul's vocation, his ministry, and his life's purpose were changed because of the gospel, and so should ours. Now, this doesn't mean that every one of us will become missionaries or preachers. Heaven forbid that happen. But this certainly does mean that all of us, uh, when we come to Christ, are to use whatever we have, our time, our talents, our money, our influence, in order to serve him and build his kingdom. 1 Peter 4, each of you should use whatever gift that you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So we all have a ministry, each one of us. But I love what Paul says about his ministry in verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Did you catch what he says there about his ministry? Paul views it as a gift of God's grace. We often think of our ministry as our gift to God or our gift to other people. But Paul sees it the other way around. He understood ministry as God's gift to him. What an awesome paradigm shift that the gospel brings. It is a privilege from God that I get to disciple other people. It is a gift that I get to preach his word. It's not just work. It's a blessing from Christ that I get to drive my children around. It's by his grace that I get to cook my wife dinner. 
It's not just responsibility. This is all gift. Again, the gospel shakes up our world so that we even begin to see things differently. And it also reminds us that the power to do this ministry, it comes from God and not from ourselves. Because I know on my own, I wouldn't even see it all as gift. I need to be empowered by him. So he says it's through the working of God's power. Finally, Paul says the gospel shakes up the world through us being together. Through being the family of God. Verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think we just need to look at this first for a moment here. When people ask you, what is the church? What's the point going, of going to church? How many of us are like, well, yeah, the church is so that we can reveal the manifold wisdom of God. Theologian N.T. Wright, he says, this is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements of the reason for the church's existence. Rulers and authorities must be confronted with God's wisdom through the church. Not through what the church says, though this is vital, but rather through what the church is. Namely, the community in which men and women and children of every race and color and social class and cultural background come together in worship of the one true God. Does that not change our perception of what it means to be the church? And as we come together, as men and women and children from every race and color and social class and cultural background together to worship the one true God, we are testifying to a new world order. And we are proclaiming not just to society and governments, but to the spiritual forces and powers. And by uniting such a diverse group into one new humanity, the body of Christ, of Christ God has put the spiritual world on notice that he is shaking things up, that his kingdom, it will come. Do you see how essential the church is in all of this? The church is not something just to be tacked on to being a Christian. It's not optional. It's not just some program to help us be better Christians. Paul says the church is an indispensable part of the gospel and that through it, God's wisdom is made known that the church is a part of his eternal purposes. This means we cannot follow Christ faithfully without being a participant in a local body of believers. And it looks different in different forms. But we need one another. I joked at the beginning of my message about how independent Dave died when he got married and had kids. But the truth is, independent Dave died when I put my hope and faith in Jesus. See, when I made Jesus my Lord and Savior, I could no longer live independently or self-sufficiently. Rather, I had to start living 
depending on Christ, trusting in him, learning to rely less on myself and more in him. And being in Christ, it is one of the major themes in this book of Ephesians that we're going through. It means that we need to abide in Jesus, live in Jesus. But what we soon realize when we begin to do this is that we are not alone and that we are no longer independent. The gospel shakes up our individualistic worlds and it tells us that in Jesus we are members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ. And this, Paul says, this is worth celebrating. He says in verse 13 to the Ephesians, don't be discouraged because he had to suffer to bring the gospel to them so that they could be a part of the church. Rather, he says, they should celebrate, they should give thanks because of all we have in Christ. We have freedom from sin. We have hope for eternity. We have a restored relationship with God and we have the gift of the church. How glorious is all of that. And it's all for you. It's for your glory, he says. And so this is what we get to do right now. Right now, we get to stop and have a meal and celebrate as we take communion together to celebrate all that God has done for us. What a gift. And in sharing this meal together, we not only celebrate what God has done for each of us personally, but we celebrate what he has done for us collectively. He has brought us into the same family. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of him, we can let go of old divisions and hostilities. And we can celebrate the peace that we have with God and with each other. Isn't it glorious? Come on, Calvary Baptist. Isn't that glorious? Yeah. Yeah. Brother Robert, would you come on up and would you lead us in communion? Would the worship team come on up and lead us in communion as we celebrate taking this divine meal together that Jesus gave to us as gift, reminding us of what he's done, but also of who we are. We are his body. We are the family of God. What a great thing. Come on up, Rob.